Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Women's History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jane Semeca, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be discussing a new book by Dr. Carol A. Lipscomb titled The Lady Makes Boots, Enid Justin and the Nakona Book Company, published by Texas Tech University Press. This book was awarded the Lou Halsell Roddenberger Prize for History, Culture, and Literature. And this award recognizes the publication of the manuscript that best illuminates women's roles in history, culture, and letters of Texas and the American West. It is also a finalist for the 2022 Will Rogers Medallion Award in the Biographies and Memoir category. It is also a finalist for the Forward Reviews list of the best biographies of 2021. So this book is just getting all kinds of recognition. Dr. Lipscomb is an independent historian and has also written about the Spanish-Texas connection in collaboration with Dr. Robert S. Weddle in a book, After the Massacre, The Violent Legacy of the San Saba Mission. Dr. Lipscomb, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jane. I'm delighted to be here. I was wondering if you could start our interview by telling us a little bit about how this book came about. Oh, I would love to. This book was a long time coming. Uh, And at one point, I almost lost the opportunity to write it. Uh, I started research on this topic in the 1990s when I was in graduate school. I actually lived in Nocona, so I was immersed in Nocona Boot Company lore. Um, I did several oral history interviews with Justin family members and um, Nocona Boot employees, and those interviews turned out to be pure gold when Quite a few years later, I finally got around to writing the book because by then most of those people had passed away. So it was wonderful to have their words that I could include in the book Mm. that I would have had had I done it earlier. 
when I finished graduate school, I got involved in other projects and I kind of put Enid's story on that proverbial back burner. Uh, in 2015, I finally decided it was time to write the story of Enid Justin and the Nocona Boot Company. And one day I was at the Nocona Museum doing research and um, one of the museum volunteers came up to me and said, do you know that one of our other volunteers has a contract to write a book about Enid Justin from a nearby university press? I was just, I was floored. I was crushed. I was shocked. I was angry. It was my subject. <laughs> I couldn't believe someone else would take it. But I realized there was only room for one book about Ina Justin. So at that point, I went home, I packed up my research, and I put it in the attic. Mm. Two years later, my phone rang one day, and it was a professor friend who was on the board of that university press that was going to publish the book. And he said, that woman has given us nothing and we can't get in contact with her. If you want it, the topic is yours. So I was delighted. Of course, I climbed those attic stairs, pulled it all down and got busy. And that was 2017. Um, I contacted Texas Tech Press and got a commitment from them to publish the book. So then it ultimately took me three years to actually write the book, which was released last November. Oh, wow. What a great, the story of the book is almost as good as the book. <laughs> That's great. Did, um, have you gotten any response by the Justin family? Any of the, any of the maybe great grandchildren or anything? Yes. Uh, uh, great nephews and nieces I have, and they have all been very positive. Um, they're, they've really been my only contact with. Yeah. Uh, there is one, uh, the wife of Joe Justin is still alive and lives in Wichita Falls. And uh, he was very controversial in the book. Yeah. And I have not had any response from her. So right. I don't know how she feels. But what I wrote, I took from a personal interview with him. So I had his words to use to back up my story. Mm. So, but uh, for the most part, uh, family response has been positive. Oh, that's great. It, that is, it's hard when you write biography to, to balance the people that you've come to really like. And uh, if you have contact with the family, that can be very sticky. Exactly. Uh, if you write anything, I mean, if you write anything that's honest, there's always going to be some unflattering parts. I mean, that's just being human. That's true. And um, mm -hmm. so that's uh, that's one of the difficulties of the of the biographer, I think, you know. Um, I learned from reading your book that there are boot historians. Now, I never realized that boots had a history. Can you talk a little bit about, oh, your, oh, yeah. you know, your methodology of using boot history? Yeah, uh, there's a wonderful history of both, both Boots and their makers. And Enid Justin and the Nocona Boot Company is just one of those many stories. But one of my favorite boot historians is Tyler Beard, who has done beautiful books on boots and included some history on the boot makers. And I think his boots really show you that 
boots can be works of art. Yeah. And cultural symbols and, you know, that. Oh, yes. The oh, you really got me thinking. You really made me think um, in a new way about history um, and about clothing and cultural symbols and and utility, right? Because really the Nakona Boot Company starts off in this very utilitarian way. Exactly. And it it just enlarges. Yeah, it's so great. So how did the Justin family get into the boot business? Um, Well, Enid's father, Herman Joseph Justin, began making boots in 1879 in the small town of a Spanish fort. It was a cow town on the Chisholm Trail. And he started making boots one pair at a time for cowboys that were driving herds north um, to markets in Missouri and Kansas. Um, The cowboys would, um, as they were going north, would stop in his boot shop, which was Spanish Fort was just below the Red River, which was then Texas border with Indian territory. So it was one of the last places in Texas that they stopped before going north. Um, The cowboys would come in one at a time. He made boots one pair at a time. He would measure their feet and they would order their boots. They would go on with their herd. When they got to their destination and got their pay, they would come back south, stop in at Justin's boot shop and pick up their finished boots. So the business grew. And in 1889, um, cattle drives were beginning to come to an end. And Justin decided to move his boot shop to Nocona, which was a brand new railroad town, uh, about 20 miles south of Spanish Fort. And he set up shop in Nocona and the business just grew. In 1908, he brought his two eldest sons into the business as full partners. And they became, uh, they renamed it H.J. Justin and Sons. Um, Then sadly, um, Daddy Joe passed away. Um, He was only 59. But the brothers, Enid's two older brothers, carried on the business. And all of the family worked in the business at some point. But they carried on the business, which which continued to grow phenomenally. By the 1920s, um, they had 37 employees and were making about 9,000 pairs of boots a year. So the business was growing. And the family made the decision to move their company to the big city of Fort Worth, Texas. That's when Enid's says, tells her family, I'm not going to Fort Worth. I'm going to stay here and open my own boot company in Nocona. And that's sort of a little controversial, right? In the story, because she does vote in, she votes along with the family to do it. But then at some, either she has, second thoughts or she changes her mind or something and decides to stay in Nakona, right? Yes. And, and she even sprung the idea on her husband. He had, he had no idea, but he went along with her and agreed to back her in it. And so she went ahead, but despite uh, the family telling her she would fail, she would lose every cent she had, uh, she wasn't deterred. She was determined. 
to do it. So that's like a really important early turning point, right? In her life and in the story that um, of the of the boot company. So you write on page 17 that Enid Justin was a maverick. What do you mean by that? Uh, that's the best descriptive word. Um, I just love the word maverick. Uh, you know, it came from another Texas original, Samuel A. Maverick, who was an early Texas a rancher who refused to brand his cattle. And the word was first used as a, to be applied to unbranded cattle. But over time, it came to be used to describe a person who uh, was unconventional and would go their own way with no concern for what other people thought. So I think the Enid showed signs of being a maverick at an early age. Um, but the best example of her maverickness, which I think I made up that word, um, was her decision to open her own boot company, despite the objections of her brothers and her family. So, Yeah, so what do you think gave Enid the confidence to enter the male-dominated boot business? Um, you know, I, I honestly think it was just sheer determination on her part. It, it had much to do with her relationship with her father. Um, she believed that she was Daddy Joe's favorite child. They had a very special bond and they were devoted to each other. Um, she believed that Daddy Joe, had he lived, would never have moved his boot company out of Nocona, that he was committed to the town that he had helped to build. And he was committed to the people of the town who he employed. So she came to believe that it was her mission to keep a boot company in Nocona to honor her daddy, Joe. I think that was the main um, force behind her decision. Was in it, and it truly became a mission for her to do that. Um, she knew she would face unique challenges as a woman, but I think uh, she overcame those challenges just with sheer determination. And hard work, right? I mean, oh, of course. she yeah. starts the and she starts the company with $5,000 loan. How did, you know, even yeah. like the idea of a woman getting a business loan. Exactly. And, and at that time, um, she was even working all of these extra. She started the boot company with five employees, $5,000. Uh, one of them was her husband. Uh, and then there were uh, three others who stayed in Nocona rather than go with Justin to Fort Worth to work with her. Um, she um, worked despite, it, it, along with doing her boot company, she worked all kinds of other jobs to make extra money. She had a boarding house and she cooked meals for boarders. She delivered coal, which was the main fuel in town at the time. She sold washing machines. It was amazing. And that just gives you an idea of how much this meant to her and how much she was willing to work to accomplish it. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, and she, and she only took $3 a week pay for what she was doing. They, they put everything back into the company initially. And I think that's truly how she, um, how she made it work. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. 
And so now there's two rival Justin boot companies. There's the Nakona boot company that Enid runs. And then there's her brother, the Justin boot company, H.J. Justin boot company in Fort Worth. Exactly. Kind of parallel boot companies, each with their own kind of have different processes of making their boots and different, but the same, they kind of are Abrahamic. (laughs) They both, they have the same father, but but they are kind of now rival boot companies. So she starts her boot company in 1925? Correct. Yes. Yes. When there were no women boot makers. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. So, and so, and she does, and her sister, she's, is she the only girl? She has sisters, right? She has three other sisters, but they, uh, they all worked in the boot factory when they were young. They would work there after school and on Saturdays, but her other sisters, uh, her youngest sister, Merle, did work with her at first. When she first started her company, Merle went on the road with her when Enid decided to be a traveling saleswoman. And Merle accompanied her in, with, on those trips. But other than that, the other girls did not become involved. Right. In they the, were kind of more traditional homemakers. They yeah. stayed home and, exactly. made, and, and kept yeah. house. And but her three brothers, it, it ended up even her younger brother uh, worked with Justin in Fort Worth. Right. So it was John, Earl, and Sam that ran the boot company in Fort Worth. Right. Mm-hmm. So... Enid has a lot of business success. She's got a lot of savvy. You can see she's just kind of almost a natural businesswoman. But she has some troubles in her personal life. So could you talk a little bit about the personal part of her life? Yes, yes. Um, yes. Some, um, she had a lot to overcome on, in that. Um, she married Julius Stelzer in 1915. At the time, they were both 21 years old. They had one child, Anna Jo. Uh, uh, Anna Jo contracted whooping cough and died at the age of 13 months. Um, Of course, Enid and Julius were devastated. But uh, to make all that worse, it was six months later that Daddy Joe died. So Enid lost her daughter and her father within a six month period. Uh, She was truly devastated. She left the boot company at that time and um, left work at the boot company and did not go back to the boot business until she started her own company in 1925. Mm. Uh, That was, that was um, her, her troubled personal life didn't end there. In 1934, Um, after they'd been married almost 20 years, Julius came, uh, uh, Enid found out that Julius was running around with a woman who worked at the boot company. Uh, She was uh, really blindsided. She was kind of the last one to know. Um, And and that, again, was devastating for her. Um, When the divorce was finalized, Julius moved to nearby Henrietta, Texas, And he started his own boot company with a partner named Carl Olson. Olson Stelzer Boot Company was never as big as Nocona Boot Company, but it's still producing boots today. Um, Then five years later, Enid met Harry Whitman 
He was charming and handsome, and her family warned her that he was only after her money. By then, uh, that was in about around 1940. Uh, she was very successful by even by 1940. Um, she didn't listen to her family and she married Harry. They were married five years and one day, Harry came to her and said, I'm leaving and I'm not leaving empty handed. So uh, once again, she was blindsided by that. She just was naive. It, it, she was such a wonderful businesswoman, but in her personal life, she just seemed to be very naive and kind of was always the last one to figure things out. Um, in that divorce settlement, the judge took Enid's side and Harry only got $1,500. Harry then moved to Wichita Falls, Texas, and he opened a boot company with two partners called Whitburn Boots. Um, and maybe I, I should lighten up all this sad, these sad stories <laughs> <laughs> with a, a good story from Enid's uh, eldest brother, John, who was president of Justin Boot Company in Fort Worth. Um, after this second divorce, John told Enid, Enid, I wish to hell you'd quit getting married. All you're doing is creating competition. <laughs> two ex-husbands, two rival boot companies are emerging. You know, and, and, and really one of the other stories that you tell in the book that I really enjoyed about Enid and her sense of uh, her strength, her moxie, her confidence is when she follows her first husband, Julius, to Oklahoma on the date yes. with the girlfriend, with his mistress. Yes. And she and her friend, I think, go to oh, follow them to a restaurant and sh they confront Julius and the mistress in Oklahoma. And um, they bring the police, right? Because it was uh, against the law. Yes. And can you tell us what yes. happens next? Yep. Uh, Julius took his girlfriend across the Red River to what was then India, what was Oklahoma by then, uh, uh, to a restaurant in a small town in Oklahoma. Well, taking her across the state line was a violation of the Mann Act, which was originally um, created to stop human trafficking uh, of women. But it had kind of gotten construed over the years to be... Um, used in personal situations. So Enid went and got the sheriff and told her that Julius was her husband, but he was in this restaurant with this woman, this other woman. So the sheriff arrested both of them, took them to jail in Warica, Oklahoma. Enid and her friend followed them to follow the sheriff with Julius and the girlfriend to the jail in Warica. And Enid went in, uh, and 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 this story is hard to believe, but you have to remember that this was such a different time. Um, this is the 1930s. Um, when Enid got to the jail, um, the sheriff handed her a broom and he said, you can poke her with this broom if you want to. You can hit her with this broom if you can reach her. I just can't let you kill her. 
I'm sorry. That is just the the image I get is just so funny. It truly is um, hard to fathom in these days, isn't it? That something like that could happen. Well, Enid took the high road and chose not to poke the woman with the broom, but she did fire her on the spot. So, yeah, she told her off. Yes. She didn't, uh, yeah. Which was, you know, I feel good for Enid for doing that because that's that's humiliating and uh, heartbreaking. She would, she would not leave the boot company for months after that. She was embarrassed to be seen on the streets in Nocona. It was that bad for her. Sure. Yes. Everybody knows your business. It's humiliating. Yes. Absolutely. I, I think that um, uh, I wonder too, as she gets older, is she living alone all these years by her? Is she living sort of by herself in the pink house? She has yes. like the pink house in Nakona, everybody knows. Yes, she is. Yes, she never marries again. Yeah. It made me wonder at the end too, you know, I know she ultimately, when she gets elderly, she has some care which, yes. you know, obviously yes. she needed, but I was thinking, you know, was her, you know, her personal life maybe was a little lonely and she had this wonderful business with all these employees who loved her and she loved them. And I was wondering like that kind of becomes her family, the, the boot company and the employees and the people of the town. It's almost like she's the, she's like the mother of the town, even though she doesn't have like a uh, her, I mean, she has her brothers, but and her nephews and things, but she doesn't have like a nuclear family for her emotional support. And that was sort of what I was thinking. Yes. And she even said, um, my uh, boot workers became my children. They, they were, they were truly family to her and she treated, and she treated them very well as long as they did what she asked. And didn't try to unionize. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the union thing is very interesting. Yeah, the that it's it was it was insulting to her that they wanted to unionize. Yes, the circle letter was such a, a great story, and that happened early on um, in the history of the boot company, where the employees wanted a um, felt like they were working too many hours for too little pay, and uh, they wanted to raise but they were in, no one would take the lead on writing the letter because they were afraid of what would happen. So they signed this in a circular form so that no one's name was at the head of the list. And there were about 25 of them that signed this, what came to be known as the circle letter. Um, in Enid's memoir, she says, when she got the circle letter, of course, she was upset and she called them all together and she told them, um, you know, I just can't let this happen. And uh, you, you can't run this ship. I run this ship. That was all she said. But I found a little newspaper clipping in one of her scrapbooks that um, told that she actually fired all 25 of those boot workers. It was during the depression, actually, when this happened and people needed jobs. So she filled those positions very quickly and it set a precedent and she didn't have any more labor difficulties for many, many years after that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what yeah. I mean when I say she, um, 
she was wonderful to employees. She did a lot to them, but she expected them to be loyal to her in return. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so she, she was like a, a very strong boss, but she was very generous too. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the things she did that were so, that were so generous? Um, yes. Um, um, you, you know, she always loved children. And I had, I really think that kind of uh, went back to her losing her only child. She really wanted to do a lot for the children of the town. Um, she made the city park into just a playground paradise. And she even went so far as to purchase a decommissioned jet plane and an army tank that were put in the park for the kids to play in. Um, they, there were wonderful tennis courts. She always sponsored a little league team all through the years. There was always a Nocona boot team in Nocona's little league. Um, she actually, if Nocona had a need, she contributed to it. She was a major contributor to the building of a new library in Nocona. So, um, and she also had a lot of parties, right? Didn't she have like a, she always had oh, like a big Christmas party? Yes. But, and didn't she offer profit sharing? Yes, she did. Uh, that's what I was sort of thinking about. So like, I always think of like, okay, so she wasn't uh, in favor of them unionizing and she did punish the union organizers. But mm. on the other hand, she did offer um profit sharing, which was really important for these people to build some wealth. Yes. She felt like she did more for her her employees than the union ever could do. And I think that was probably true. Um, She also established the um, Nocona's Chisholm Trail Roundup, which is the Nocona Rodeo. And she was the first president of the Nocona Rodeo, and she held that position for 10 years. At one point, the newspaper wrote that she was the only woman president of a rodeo association in the United States. So she could add that to being the only woman bootmaker. So another first. Mm-hmm. But she loved rodeo, and she attended rodeos all the time and stock shows where she sold her boots. So... Um, she traveled all over, attending all kinds of events like that. That's great. Mm-hmm. But a rivalry sort of between her brother, she has sort of a rivalry with her brothers. They're not always, um, the relations between the two companies isn't always uh, very sweet. <laughs> so can you talk exactly. a little bit about the, the friction between yes. the, the rival boot companies? Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, there were probably about 57 years of rivalry, which was how long Enid ran her boot company. Uh, there were uh, numerous lawsuits initiated by both sides uh, that kind of ranged from frivolous to substantive. Um, they're all detailed in the book, um, and it, it's a lot to go into. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you, just give you one example. Um, at one point, Enid's brothers sued her for using the Justin name, which happened to be her name also. Now, to be fair, Enid realized that there was value in the Justin name. Um, Justin Boot had a good reputation. Uh, she never, she kept her maiden name, 
she never took her married name, which was unconventional at the time also. Um, her stationary letterhead said, Nocona Boot Company, and directly underneath, Enid Justin President. She did liberally use her last name, but it was her last name. Eventually that lawsuit was dropped. The brothers realized they didn't really have a case there. Um, yeah. But. You know, and it's interesting. I think that um, like some of the disputes between the two companies involve patents and, and things like that, that are, you know, they get a little bit, you know, in the legal realm of the story. Yeah. Um, but it seems that even though they were competitors, that there was still love and it was almost like they had a, um, they understood each other because they're from the same family, right? That as the, the family had its disagreements, but they always ended up kind of, they, they, they stayed in love with each other, even though. Yeah, I'll were... give you a really interesting example of that. It's interesting that you picked up on that. There was this odd dynamic that surfaced again and again. Uh, of course, their correspondence in all these controversies and these, you know, battles over different issues was by letter. And these letters written by both sides were often very contentious letters. At the bottom, there would often be a PS that had something to do with family. And like one example that, that, I, that I specifically remember Enid wrote this very strong letter to her brothers about some issue that they were having. At the bottom, it said, P.S. Wish you had been here for the 4th of July. We moved the piano out on the porch and had a wonderful sing-along. I mean, how odd is that? But it seemed that they always separated business and family, which I think is an odd dynamic. It is. It mm -hmm. seems to be very Justin, though. It yes. seems to be very much in keeping yes. with their family, what their family is about, yes. and that they were a big, you know, bunch of mavericks. Yeah. And so nobody was going to go along with the, with the program. Everybody was going to be an individual. Um, but they all love Daddy Joe and all kind of, when it comes down to it, um, agreed with their Justin, you know, there's, there's a sense of Justin solidarity there and, and love, I think that really comes through. So why do you think the Nocona boot company is a success? You know, when it kind of comes to the end here, what do you think made it a success? Uh, well, I think there are a lot of reasons, but uh, maybe primarily one important thing was that Enid consistently produced a quality product. That was one of her main goals. And she had learned that from Daddy Joe. That was always something that Daddy Joe demanded was a quality product. And Enid always bought the best materials and said, you can't make a quality boot if you don't start with the best materials. I, I think that of course was a factor. Um, I also think her business plan was pretty, was pretty ingenious. Um, throughout her, the career of her business, of her company, she stuck to this business plan. She wanted her boots to embody the romance of the old West, 
but at the same time, um, they continually evolved to the fashion demands and to incorporate new technology. So that, that turned out to be a winning formula for her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she also knew how to uh, not grow too fast. You know, she wanted to, she seems to want to keep things from getting too big so that she could always maintain, like you said, the quality control. Right. And that got to be really difficult for her in the later years when the company was really going gangbusters. Uh, She had this fear that she would lose control of it. She always fought that. Um, Another thing I think that um, was um, contributed to her success um, was the fact that she was a master of promotion. And that was another thing she inherited from her dad, who had also had that skill. But um, the 1939 Pony Express race that she created as a publicity, a big publicity stunt, um, was just an amazing promotion. Um, It was in 1939, she established this race that would go from Nocona to the Golden Gate Exposition in San Francisco. The riders in this race would go by horseback. Um, They would each have two horses so that one would be trailered to rest. They would ride the horses in 25 mile stints and then trade horses so that it wasn't hard on the horses. Um, uh, It it was just, it's a great story just in itself. But there ended up being 17 riders in this Pony Express race. There were 15 Texas Cowboys, one Oklahoma Cowboy, and one Nocona Cowgirl. The Cowgirl only made it to the second day. She was disqualified when she was caught riding in her truck, which was against the rules. But <laughs> this was almost 2,000 miles, this race, across the Southwest. Um, and... A few of the riders made it. Um, The winner was Shannon Davidson, who was a cowboy from Matador, Texas. And Enid had flown to San Francisco to present him with the prize, which was 750 silver dollars. It was an event that gained her nationwide publicity. So that really promoted her company in a big way. She was never afraid to to try really uh, pretty, you know, pretty interesting and big events. Yes, yes. Um, Another uh, wonderful advertising um, campaign that really promoted her company came later in the 60s and 70s. Um, It was called Let's Rodeo. And the... The campaign was a series of beautiful images that were made into posters, but they were always, uh, they always depicted just a cowboy. There was a cowboy there, but all you saw was his no-cona boots. And he was battling some critter, some harmful critter. And you would see his hands and his no-cona boots and the critter. Well, the most popular one of those was the cowboy with his no-cona boots stepping on a rattlesnake. And you see the cowboy's hand reaching down with a bowie knife 
and you know the fate of the rattlesnake. That poster became so popular, it was the third selling poster behind Star Wars and Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> That's terrific. You know what, I, I even love, um, in terms of her business acumen and her skill as a businesswoman, I love even earlier in the book where the there's no longer a big cowboy business, but she understands that the oil business, that the oil rigs and all the men that work in the oil business in Texas were also going to need footwear. Yes. And adjusting the style of the of the boot to suit that that industry, um, I thought was ingenious. And yeah. it seems like every era of this book, there is a boot that goes along with it. Exactly. A style, a boot style that fits the times. Yes. Yes, the story of the oil field boots is really a great story. And that was very early on when cowboys refused to buy from a woman. But then there was a big oil field that was discovered just north of Nocona. It was called the North Field. And um, all these oil workers came in to work. And that's when Ina decided, we'll make lace-up boots for these roughnecks that are working the oil field. And it turned out the oil field workers bought her boots. And the cowboys soon came around and said, wow, if those oil field workers like the boots, maybe we should try her boots also. And that kind of turned it around for her. Yeah. And then, you know, in the 50s, you know, this book becomes a bit of a fashion history, too, because, you know, in the 50s, the you know popularity of Gene Autry and some of those, the cowboy movies, the cowboy shows, and in the 50s and the 60s, makes wearing cowboy clothes, shirts and things. And she expands into clothing, right? Yes, she does. Um, uh, late 50s, early 60s. Uh, and she even adds on to her boot company um, at that point, which is um, a, a big factory by now out on the highway. Uh, in Nocona. She has built a big new factory in 1948. She adds a retail store uh, on the end of that factory and she sells um, all kinds of cowboy paraphernalia. And she even goes into, um, she has Texas togs for a while that um, actually manufactures uh, cowboy clothing in Nocona. And that doesn't last real long, but um, but she does do that. So she yeah, she's just adventurous. everything. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting, you know, when you think about women in business in her era, just say from like the thirties through the seventies, you know, would you think, I mean, you may not know this for sure. I'm just asking, but where do you think she ranks among the business women in the United States at that time? You know, Think about like some of the women, you know, there weren't that many women business leaders at that time who were CEOs of their companies. No, um, you know, early think on, of like, I can't like think Mary of Kay, like Mary somebody like Kay is kind of the first one that comes to my mind. Yeah. Yes. Who built her company and went nationwide. And yeah. Her. So I got to think she's like got to be among the top tier. 
of women business leaders in the country during her heyday. I think, I think you're probably right. Yes. Yeah. So this podcast channel looks at women's history, mm-hmm. you know, and your book obviously is much bigger than that. <laughs> Texas history, boot history, right? But if we're going to like kind of just think about women's history, how do you think your book fits in with uh, women's history or could be useful in a course on women's history? Well, I, 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 Enid was never an activist in the women's rights movement. Um, she made her place in a man's world by just doing it. Um, she knew she had to overcome perceptions about women in business, um, but she did that by just plowing ahead. And eventually she was successful. Um, I, I, I always say she didn't start her boot company because she was a woman. She started her boot company in spite of the fact that she was a woman. Um, I think her background is real important. Um, she was raised in a family where boys and girls were treated equally. Her brothers and sisters all worked in the boot factory as they were growing up. There, it was not different for the girls. They all did the same. And I think she learned early on that girls could do whatever the boys could do. I think that had a major impact on her later life. Um, She also um, employed women beginning in World War II um, when she lost many of her her men who went to join the armed forces. She hired women and she learned that women could be great boot makers. And from that time forward, her workforce was often 50% women, which I think was unusual mm-hmm. also during that time. Especially uh, in industry like that, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, she did take a more active role in that um, women's rights movement, that later women's rights movement that became known as second wave feminism. Um, she was often asked to come speak at women's groups or women's meetings to tell her story as an example for young women who wanted to join, become a part of the business world. So I think in that way, she led by example. Yeah. Rather than being an actual activist. Right. You know, not just, she didn't, uh, she wasn't like a political person, but she's a woman who just is such a great example yes. of breaking through the glass ceilings of business and being independent and and not being discouraged by people telling her you can't do this. Exactly. You know, she was had just always had that kind of personality where she, she was going to do it because she had this confidence in herself. Um, She was once asked by a reporter if she was a women's liber. And she replied, honey, I was a liber before the word and the definition were even invented. (laughs) That's very Enid. (laughs) I love that. But I'll tell you, I would, I would love to use a book like this in my women's history class. It's uh, I think students would really enjoy it. And, you know, I hope people who are looking for material for women's history course, consider it because I think that their students would really enjoy it. And um, Jane, 
And you need that regional balance too. I mean, I think when you're looking at teaching US women's history, having women who are East Coast as well as in the West, North and South, like you need that regional oh, right. balance. Yes. I think this book fills the bill in in so many ways. It's really a um, it really incorporates the Western culture and history as well as the women's history and in, in, in such a great way because when st- I think maybe a lot of students think about uh, the West, they think in a about a very macho culture and a very masculine yes, kind of narrative. Women, and this really offers such a great counter to that. Wow. Good. I'm glad you think that. Yeah. So I would encourage anybody who's looking for something for their course to definitely give this book a a read. And uh, I think that your students will really enjoy it. I'm definitely going to suggest it to my students as well. So do you have a favorite Enid Justin story? Oh, I well, there are so many good stories. Um, but I think I'd like to tell you one from uh, Enid's youth because it was an early indicator of her strong will and um, maybe the first indicator that she would be a maverick. So I'd like to tell you this story using Enid's words. I'll read you. Enid wrote this story in her memoir. And it's just a paragraph, but I think hearing it from Enid herself really gives it an impact. She said, I had finished the seventh grade and was ready to start in the eighth grade on my brother John's birthday. We had a big party at our house to honor John. There were about 20 couples, his friends there. We always danced in our home. We had a long wide hallway that was perfect for dancing. So after dinner, we retreated to the hall and we danced. The next morning, when I went to school, Mr. Patty, that was Eden's teacher, asked if I had danced the night before. I said, yes, I had a good time. I thought he sounded like he was happy by the way he asked. I found out different when he said, well, I have had instructions from the school board to suspend you for three weeks. You aren't expelled, but you are suspended. It absolutely floored me and I got mad pretty quick. I got my books and I started walking out and I told him, anybody that thinks there's a party going on in my own home and I'm going upstairs to go to bed has something else to think about. (laughs) That wasn't very smart, but I said it anyway and I never bothered to go back to school. She She was 13. So that really adds to to this idea of somebody who becomes uh, the head of a multi-million dollar company with a seventh grade education. Exactly. Exactly. She went to work full time at the boot company. She um, later wrote in her memoir that she wondered why she often wondered why her mother and daddy Joe hadn't made her go back to school. But she decided it was because they needed her help in the in the boot factory. Mm-hmm. So from 13 on, she worked side by side with Daddy Joe. And I think that's where that special bond 
came about between the two of them that ultimately led to her starting her own boot company. Yeah, it's a turning point because, you know, instead of all those years being in school all day, she was with her dad working side by side all day. Right. And the other kids all stayed in school and finished school. Oh, yeah. So absolutely. That's a, a big contributing factor to her identity and her feeling like she's the favorite. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, one of my favorite moments in the story is when you describe Enid enjoying gambling at the slot machines. And, you know, she's a very moral, scrupulously moral woman, and she doesn't drink and she doesn't smoke, but she does admit this one vice. And on page 176, you wrote, quote, clearly the joy was in winning despite the cost. So does this sum up Enid, you know? I mean, she was winning at the slot machine, but of course she's putting more coins in than she's getting out of the slot machine. But she enjoyed it anyway. So what do you think, you know, I thought this was a really interesting quote about her personality. Um, That's an interesting question, Jane. Um, That quote came from a story told to me by Steve Pickens, who was the last president of No Conable Company. At the time, Enid was in her 80s and still making trips to Las Vegas to play the slot machines, uh, often in conjunction with a rodeo or something that was there at the time. So it could be a business trip. And Steve Pickens accompanied her on one of these trips. And he uh, he said um, it, it was never, <laughs> she was always excited about how much she won. She only remembered how much she won. She never remembered how much she spent to win (laughs) that money. And he he gave me an example. He said, uh, Enid would say, I won $3,000. And her nurse would say, but she put in 6,000. So obviously (laughs) the joy was in the winning despite the cost. And, you know, I think in some ways that does sum up her life because all of her life, she was willing to risk everything to accomplish what her goals. Yeah. And, you know, I think to be successful in business, you have to be competitive. You have to enjoy the, Mm -hmm. the, the spirit of competition and winning and taking risks. I mean, that's really at the foundation of, of a good you know, of, of a really good uh, person in business, I think, you know, willing to take risks. And and she has both halves. I mean, I think about her personality. I think of somebody who's driven and perfectionist about her product, but also loves her employees, loves her, loves the mission of her company in such a personal way, so personal to her. So it has kind of both halves of uh, of the coin there for her. It's really, really... Um, you can see her joy in the winning and the success and maybe even beating her brothers. I think maybe there was a little of that rivalry with her brothers. I think she kind of enjoys it a little bit. And at times, particularly in the 1950s, she surpassed them in sales and in popularity and in um, recognition that she got. So yeah, that, that was always there. Yeah. That, that I don't was. blame her. 
You know, she beat the boys. It pushed her. her. Yeah. (laughs) I like it. Yeah. So you mentioned Edith's now getting into her 80s and she had no designated successor to lead the company. And so the future of the company was in question. So then what happened to Enid and the Justins and the Nocona boot company as she got really elderly? Well, um, throughout her boot company career, she was always adamant that her company would never uh, fall into the hands of her rival, Justin Boot, always. Um, she was still president of her company in 1980. She was 86 years old and she was having health issues and she knew that she had to make a plan for her company. Her decision-making process uh, through all of this is very complicated and involves ultimately three lawsuits. Um, So I'm just going to kind of skip to the bottom line here and um, she ends up uh, merging her company with Justin, which by that time, 1980s, had become a conglomerate known as Justin Industries. Um, It is at that time run by her nephew, John Justin Jr. And so John Justin Jr. is the one she ultimately makes the deal with after many mind changes and lawsuits and lots of lots of issues. but in the deal, she makes John promise that Nocona, her Nocona boot company will stay in Nocona and he will keep her workforce in place. So that was so important to her. Um, the deal is um, the deal is done. Um, they do an exchange of stock valued at uh, $8,950,000. So then um, Nocona Boot becomes um, a part of Justin Industries. A few years later, Justin Industries acquires Tony Lama Boots. So at, by that time, all three of the, Tex, the Texas big three boot makers, as they were known, Nocona, Justin, and Tony Lama are all in the hands of Justin Industries. Um, Nocona Boot Company continued to to prosper, even under Justin Industries' control. Um, In 1989, the company had a record year and produced 343,000 pairs of boots. That's almost hard to even imagine. Um, I've often thought that um, Enid must have been proud and thought uh, she had made the right decision in merging with Justin Industries. Uh, Enid died that next year, 1990. She was 96 years old. And of course she was buried in her beloved Nocona. Um, For a few years, all continued well in the boot industry. Um, But in the mid to late nineties, boot sales started to slump. Um, The downturn was fashion driven. Uh, Boots were no longer as fashionable as they had been in the previous decade. So Justin Industries was ultimately forced to make some tough decisions. In 1999, 
they closed the Nocona Boot Factory. At the same time, they closed their Fort Worth Boot Factory. They consolidated all of their boot making at a factory in El Paso. So El Paso is where all three brands continue to be made. Nocona, Justin, and Tony Lama. And um, they're, still, they're still made today. Although I would say Nocona boots are not the same. Uh-huh, yeah. They have the name, but they're not the same. Right. Uh, then in 1999, John Justin Jr. retired. And there were no longer any Justins involved in Justin Industries. He was the last of the Justins to go on with that. Mm. In 2000, the conglomerate was purchased by Berkshire Hathaway, um, that holding company of billionaire investor Warren Buffett. Um, no Kona boots are still made today. The Justin Industries is still producing them. So now under the control of um, Berkshire Hathaway. Right. And I had, you know, it's it was, I kind of, expected when I got to the end that it was going to be something like that and yeah. uh, but it was still made me sad <laughs> yeah but you know Jane I, I really think she finally made that decision to merge with Justin because they were family you know that family tie had always been there and I think that and that was the best choice for her yeah yeah it was, you know, it was really her only, you know, I could just imagine her struggling with that decision, mm-hmm. you know, what to do. And, you know, it was very, I think it was very hard for her to give up control as she got older of the day-to-day operations. Like they were talking about her. She still opened all the mail yes. every day. She went through every single piece of mail. She would go in and, and you know, she was just a really uh, committed and to to controlling the company and to running it correctly and, you know, out of love for for the for the company and for her employees. And so, yeah, it's um, and she hangs in there. I mean, she's still going back to the factory when she's in her 80s in a wheelchair. Right. And going and seeing everybody because she misses it, you know, so. Yes. You know, it's it's hard to retire when it's something that you really love and it's part of you. Yes. Yes. You yeah. could tell that she hated, so hated giving it up, but she knew she had no choice. Right. Yeah. Yes. She had a good run. Enid had a she good did. run. She did. Yes. Yeah. So this is one of my absolute favorite books of the year in women's history. And I really hope you'll take a look at the book, The Lady Makes Boots, it is a terrific read. You know, I want to thank Dr. Carol A. Lipscomb for joining me on the show today and for a great discussion of her book, The Lady Makes Boots, Enid Justin and the Nocona Boot Company, published by Texas Tech University Press. Until next time on the new books in women's history, this is Jane Semeca. Keep reading. <laughs>